0: Father, as we place ourselves before you now in the presence of your word, we've already worshiped through song and singing to you, and now we would pray that you would speak to us from your written word, that you would challenge us and convict us, and for all of us in this room, we're in one of two spots today. We either have a relationship with you or we don't. And I pray that as we look at the gospel this morning, that if there's one here that doesn't have that relationship today, they will see the need to establish that relationship. And for those of us who already have that relationship, may we be challenged to share this good news of this great God who has saved our souls. It's in his good and holy name we pray. Amen. And amen. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. If you're new here, we have been moving through the book of Acts on Sundays and we are looking at the birth and the early years of the church. I remind you that the church, as defined by scripture, is not a building. It is not a campus. It is not even a collection of different ministries that occur in a specific location. The church is not a museum, but a movement. The church is not a place, nor is it a collection of programs. The church is people. Specifically, the church is a group of people who have been called out for a specific purpose. The title of our series as we have gone through this book of Acts is, I believe, the theme of the book of Acts, and that is sent. You and I have been sent. Jesus made it clear that his followers were to be sent into the world in a similar manner in which he was sent, and that we have been sent into the world for the same purpose for which he was sent. I think about the prayer that Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion when he prayed to his father in John chapter 17 and he said to his father, as you sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, he gave that same message and that same mission to his disciples, to his followers, to you and I in John chapter 20. He said, as the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. There is no doubt about it. There's no question to be asked. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we have been sent into this world for the same purpose for which Jesus came into this world. Now, Jesus began this mission and he has called his followers, the church, to continue this mission to its completion. The mission God has given you, the mission God has given me, the mission God has given his people, the church, is not complete until the whole world hears. Jesus made this very clear. When He gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. He said, go therefore and make disciples not just of your nation, but of all nations until the whole world hears. It was Jesus who said in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 to go into all the world. Not just part of it, but to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Not just part of it, but to the whole creation. This, my friends, is the primary purpose of the church. Oh, fellowship is good, but it's not the mission. Bible study is great, but it's not the mission. Our worship is a great privilege and a great responsibility, but it is not the end game. If fellowship does not lead us to the mission of sharing the gospel so those without fellowship with God can have fellowship with him. It's not accomplished its purpose. If Bible study does not propel us to share with others the hope that this word gives us, we have failed in that mission. If our worship of God only moves us while we're sitting within these walls but it never moves us out of these walls to share what God has done for us that our worship is incomplete. The church was created for the purpose of Movement. We are to move our lives around the gospel and then move that gospel around our world. For 2,000 years, the church has been called to this purpose. Persecution has not stopped it. Internal bickering and fighting that y'all know church folks fight. Internal bickering and fighting has yet to stop this movement of God, the church. And a pivotal moment occurs in the 10th chapter of Acts. And it reminds us that our task of following Jesus and living sent is not complete until the whole world hears. Until this moment in the book of Acts, the gospel has been declared primarily among the Jews. It has yet to be declared to the Gentiles. And the church at this point was composed primarily of Jewish believers and nobody else. However, the gospel is for all people so the gospel must go to all people. And Acts chapter 10 shows us how God revealed this truth to Peter and how Peter was the first apostle to share the gospel with a group of non-Jewish people, a group of Gentiles, a man by the name of Cornelius and his household, his family, and his friends. Today, last week, we looked at the whole chapter. Today, we're going to look at just the sermon that Peter preached. And I know you're probably going to think that pastor should keep his sermon in the same length that Peter kept his, but my name's not Peter, and we're not in the church in Jerusalem. <laughs> Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth. Now, when Peter used to open his mouth, usually it, it was always a toss-up as to what was going to come out of his mouth. But he got it right this time. Peter opened his mouth and he said, here's his sermon. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. "'But God raised him up on the third day "'and made him to appear, not to all the people, "'but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses.' who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's his sermon. Here's the result. Verse 44. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain. For some days. From Peter's sermon, we see why this gospel is a gospel for all people. And this message today is applicable to every single person in this room because you're in one of two situations today. Either one, you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior. If you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want you to listen to me as closely as you've listened to anyone before. Not because I'm slick in my speech, because I'm sure I'll butcher a word or two or three. But I want you to hear what I have to say today because the gospel's going to We present them, and this is the gospel by which you are saved. If you're here today and you already have that relationship with Jesus, you are sent, you are called, you are commanded to share the hope for the reason that you have. If you aren't sharing that hope, then you are in sin. If you're not sharing the good news, you are in sin. You say, "Pastor, I don't know how to share the good news." You are after today. You have no excuse. So, for everyone, let's buckle our seatbelts. I'll have you out of here by the time Sunday night football comes on tonight. Okay. Three things I want you to notice from this text about the gospel. First, Peter explained what the gospel proclaims. He explains what the gospel proclaims. And specifically in Peter's sermon, (coughs) this gospel proclaims at least three things. One, the gospel proclaims that we are sinners who are separated from God. Notice what he said in verse 36, that he was going to preach good news of peace. For you see, apart from the work of Jesus, we are not at peace with God because we are sinners. Later in verse 39, it says that they put him to death. They put Jesus to death. His death was necessary because of our sin. Paul summarize this in a really great way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul said, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Here's what that verse means. That verse means that if you and I were in the Garden of Eden, instead of it being Adam and Eve, you and I would have made the same choice that Adam and Eve made. We would have chosen to defy God and to disobey obey his command, and we would have rebelled against our creator. The fact that we are sinners causes us to not be at peace with God, but to be estranged from God, separated from him, needing salvation, and this is a worldwide problem that crosses all cultural and racial and monetary and social status barriers. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The pew you're sitting on, you're sitting with the sinner. And if you're sent by yourself, you are the sinner. <laughs> the person you're married, never mind, we'll go on. <laughs> the gospel proclaims. That were sinners who were separated from God. But the gospel also proclaims that Jesus is our substitute who died in our place. <clears throat> Verse 39 says that they put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. That is the death of Jesus. Verse 40 says, and as we sung about earlier today, but God raised him on the third day. That is the resurrection of Jesus. See, here is how this happened. Sin, our sin, it incurs a debt to God, and that debt must be paid. However, we are not able to pay that debt ourselves because we cannot manufacture the righteousness required to pay that debt. A crooked stick cannot draw a straight line. We cannot produce the righteousness that is required. We need someone who is willing to pay that debt in our place. We need someone who is qualified to pay that debt in our place as our substitute. I'll give you one hint as to who I'm talking about. His name starts with J and rhymes with Weezus. That'd be who? Who? Jesus. That's always the answer to any question in church, okay? Jesus. Look at what Scripture tells us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 25, Martin Luther called this verse the great exchange where we give God our sin and he gives us salvation. For our sake, whose sake? Not his sake, our sake. For our benefit, God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, not in us, But in him we might become, not that we might earn, not that we might merit, but we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there is a great wall that is between us and God, and that wall is sin. And we cannot climb that wall. We cannot bridge that wall. We cannot break through that wall in order to make peace with God. But thanks be to God, that wall is removed by Jesus, for you see... At the cross, God took our sin. He placed it upon Jesus Christ, and he punished our sin there through his suffering and death. Jesus lived the life we could never live. Jesus died the death we should have died to pay the price that we owed God for our sin as our substitute. And then Jesus defeated the ultimate enemy, death and the grave by his resurrection. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is our substitute who died in our place, but the gospel also proclaims that Jesus is the only way for salvation. I know this is not politically correct, and I know it's not religiously popular. And I know that what I'm about to say is not even grammatically correct. But if it ain't through Jesus... It ain't happening. Because he is the one and only way. There, there, look back at verse 30, 30, 37 of that text we just read. Peter mentions the baptism of Jesus. And at first it seems weird. Why would Peter talk about baptism in the gospel? Well, He's not talking about baptism in He's talking about the baptism of Jesus. Go back to the baptism of Jesus in your mind. When Jesus was baptized, what was that all about? It wasn't he was being baptized because he had sins to be forgiven, because baptism doesn't do that. In fact, he didn't need to be baptized for any reason other than this one. At the baptism of Jesus, God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well Pleased. And when he spoke from heaven in that way, at the baptism of Jesus, God set his approval on Jesus. He identified Jesus as his son publicly, as the messenger, the one to whom we should listen. Verse 38 tells us that God anointed Jesus, that God was with him. Look, Jesus was the only one who received God's approval and anointing and authority to be the substitute for sinners you see the invitation to salvation is given it is open to all who would come but it is a one way path and that path must pass through Jesus this is what the gospel proclaims that we are sinners separated from God but that Jesus died as a substitute in our place and as that substitute he's the only way for salvation to occur But Peter not only explained what the gospel proclaims, he also explained what the gospel produces. What does the gospel accomplish in our lives? What does the gospel produce when we embrace this substitute, when we embrace this Savior, when we ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior? What does the gospel produce? A couple of things. This gospel, Peter tells us in his sermon, produces a pardon for sin. Verse 43, he said in that sermon, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now let's see how this connects what the gospel produces, connects to what we said just earlier about what the gospel proclaims. The gospel proclaims we're sinners separated by God. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is our substitute. That then produces, and what that means is that we are sinners, we are guilty of sin, And that sin carries a heavy price, a heavy consequence. It is separation from God. As sinners, we owe a debt to God for our sin, and we cannot pay that sin. Here comes the substitute. Someone stepped in. Someone paid the price for us, thus making it possible for my debt to be forgiven, to be pardoned from my sin. That's what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means that the debt is canceled. I want you to think. Do this for just a second. Imagine with me. The biggest debt you have in your life right now, financial debt, It might be your mortgage. I don't know what baby step you're on, but it might be uh, you may have racked up some credit card debt and you got that against you. It might be a school loan, whatever it is. I want you to think about the largest debt you have. Now, I'm not talking about the government coming to bail you out. I'm not talking about the government saying we're going to make this disappear. No, no, no. For, for me, the biggest debt my, my family has it's our house, our house note. Imagine that the people at the lending company, they call me up tomorrow. They say, Jonathan Russell. I say, yes. Someone is standing at my desk right now. And you owe this amount on your home. 26 more years, is paid off. You owe this much on your home but I have a person standing at my desk that has the exact amount of debt that you owe. And this person is giving me the cash if you're willing to take that deal. You ever seen a Baptist preacher dance? (laughs) If you want to, get somebody to do that and I'll record it for you and I'll show it to you. I'll put it on screen. That wouldn't that what mean if your biggest if someone called you and said, Hey, the biggest debt you have, someone right now is at my desk, and they are willing to pay the debt, and you are never gonna owe another. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to have someone completely erase our debt? My friend, may I tell you something that's even greater? That we owed a debt to God we never had a shot of paying. And at the cross, God is saying, Look at Jesus, look at Jesus. There is a man who is paying your debt. He's standing at the cross, paying every debt you owe against me. And if you will receive it, he'll cancel it and forgive it forever. He'll pardon our sin. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He said, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you who were dead, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And look what God and Jesus did with it. This he set aside, nailing our debt to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The gospel produces the forgiveness, the pardon of our sin. The gospel produces this peace with God. We saw how in verse 36 Peter preached the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. When we say that sin separates us from God, it means that we're separated from having peace with God. And what that means is that if you're not at peace with God... You are at enmity with God, and that means that you are the object of God's wrath. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, I want you to listen and hear this. Without a relationship with Jesus, at this moment, you are not at peace with God. You are under the wrath of God. And that means that if today's your last day or Jesus makes his return, that you will have to stand before God not at peace with him but at odds with him. An object of his wrath. That's how you'll meet God. Either on peaceful terms or on terms of wrath. Why would anyone want to stand under the wrath of God. The gospel makes it possible for that not to occur. The gospel produces peace with God, and the gospel also produces the presence of God in our lives. You see in verse 44, verse 45, how these Gentile believers have an encounter with God, and the Holy Spirit of God falls upon them. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the presence of sin, the power of sin, must exit when the presence of the power of God indwells, and the gospel produces that. So Peter explains to us what the gospel proclaims. He explains to us what the gospel produces. But real quick, there's one more thing. Peter explained to us what the gospel promises. He explains to us what the gospel promises. In verse 42 of Peter's sermon, it says that He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter is making a promise about Jesus in verse 42. Jesus, he promises, is the one who God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. The gospel promises that one day, Jesus, the role he will occupy, will no longer be that of a savior, but it will be the role of a judge. And the purpose of a judge is to issue judgment against sinners. See, I would love to be able to stand up here and tell you that it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how you live your life, that in the grand scheme of things, when you finally stand before God, he'll say, here's one more chance. Here's one more opportunity. Now that you have spent your life the way you want to spend it, now that you're no longer living on this earth and now you're before me, here's one more little lifeline for you. I'd love to be able to tell you that, but if I told you that, I'd be lying to you. Because that's not how Scripture says it plays out. Scripture says it is appointed unto man wants to die, but after this there is judgment. Scripture teaches that everyone must stand and appear before Jesus Christ. Everyone will stand before God. You must face Jesus, and you will face him as either judge or savior. You face him as a savior, it brings salvation. You keep putting it off and you face him as a judge, it's going to bring judgment. I've shared this with you several times before, how it just works in my simple mind. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person from the most righteous saint to the most notorious sinner, from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler will bow down at the feet of Jesus. And declare him as Savior and Lord. If you make that declaration in your life now, you declare him to be your Lord and Savior, you confess your sin, repent, you receive salvation from him, it brings salvation. And if that occurs in this life, for me right now, even though I'm a flawed sinner, even though I mess up every day of my life, even though I have many more mistakes than I have anything right going on, even though all that's taken place, I can claim Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never be condemned by Jesus because he offered me his grace and I received it. I've bowed my knee to Jesus and I've declared him as Lord. If you wait until you stand before him, if you wait until this moment, Philippians chapter two, if you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus now and and confess him as Lord and Savior, you will confess him as Lord then on that day, but it's too late. That day does not bring salvation. That day brings condemnation. So if you're going to have to bow down to him anyway, why not bow down to him today? If you're going to have to confess he is Lord, why don't you confess it today so the condemnation can be removed from you? The most tragic reality the world will ever know is that of all the people who are in hell today, not a single one had to go. Every person in this sanctuary today can enjoy eternal life with Jesus because the gospel is for all. My question to you is very simple Have you accepted that invitation? Today, Jesus invites you to confess your sin. And to as best as you know how, repent of that sin, turn from that sin and embrace him instead and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. The gift of salvation, he's placed before you, but it only impacts you if it's received. If you've never received that gift of salvation, in just a second when I pray, would you just pray to God? Just ignore me when I pray. And you pray and ask Jesus, to be your Lord and Savior. There are many people in this room who've already had a prayer that just like that, they've had their sins forgiven, and praise be to God for that. But would you take this gospel message to your world, to the people with whom you work, to your friends, to your family members, to those around you? And if you say, Pastor, I don't know anyone who's not a Christian. Get out of church so much and get into the world and get around some folks. If you don't know someone who's an unbeliever, because they are all around us, get out of your holy huddle and find someone who needs Jesus and share with them this greatest message the world has ever known. Would you bow with me this morning as we bow and pray? After I pray, we're going to stand and sing you do whatever God's calling you to do today, surrender your all to him because he gave his all for us. Father, I thank you that Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. That he lived a life that honored you perfectly because I never could. And he died in my place as my substitute. Many years ago, I decided to confess and repent of my sin, and I haven't been perfect since then. Oh, I've been far from it. But your grace has sustained me, and your grace has removed that condemnation. Your mercy has made it possible for me to not only not receive what I deserve, but to receive those things I don't because of your love. And you offer that to every person in this room today. I pray that we would receive that invitation. That we would accept that gift, and that we would not rest until the whole world hears that this gospel is for all. Have your will on your way with us. In Jesus' good name, I pray.